Hello and welcome to the Overthinking It Game of Thrones recap, Season 4, Episode 6, The Laws of Gods and Men. The laws of gods and men dictate that we broadcast a little bit earlier tonight than per usual. And uh, so if you're watching us live, you're catching us at 8.15 Eastern Time, uh, about 8.20 actually now, uh, 5.20 Pacific Time, and uh, I believe it's 8.20 a.m. Hong Kong time. So thank you to everybody out in the bay over there. Really appreciate you uh, checking us out. Rather won't be joining us. He's traveling. It was kind of a bit of a... We had to make some sort of uh, Sophie's Choice, I guess is the me metaphor I would use for when we were going to have this. And it is uh, without rather, which is sad. Um, and that was also an inappropriate comment. But this is a very serious episode where a lot of serious, sad things happen. Uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, hey, what's up? We're live. Tweet us at Overthinking It and ask us questions if you want, and we'll get to them. And if you're listening to this on our audio feed, please subscribe on iTunes or your RSS feed pod tracker or any other way that you listen to this audio. We are upgrading the audio for these because we know that the audio listeners appreciate excellence. So you'll be hearing me on my headset now, and you'll be seeing me on my headset now, whereas previously my ears had been uncovered. And if you watch closely, you'll notice some other members of our panel are also wearing headsets. But that's something, that's an Easter egg for all of the hardcore fans to figure out who's wearing a headset who didn't previous. I don't know. All right. So, yes, and uh, we'll be on YouTube, and you'll watch us uh, on replays there. So hello uh, to everybody. Now, without further ado, we should just dive right in. This is a, this is a super intense episode. Uh, this is an episode where there's a lot of departures from the story so far, which introduces a certain amount of suspense. And it's an episode where a lot of people are lying a lot of the time about a lot of things. And also where the notion of truth is discussed both overtly and subvertly. But first, let's do our usual little ritual where we go around the horn and we ask the panel for the moment that they feel gives them the best doorway to interpretation for the episode. The best vocabulary, the best symbology, the best uh, the key that unlocks the door to enjoying, appreciating, perhaps even understanding and analyzing this fine episode of Game of Thrones. So going through in alphabetical order, uh, Ben Adams. Ben, how are you doing? How are the God, laws of gods and men treating you today? <laughs> They're pretty good. You know, out here on the West Coast, I, I found that Easterners have a different sense of time. So I guess, you know, we're, we're starting at 520 today. That, that, that's fine. Um, oh, wait, what does that comment mean? What, how is this different? It was, it was a line from the uh, the episode where they're oh, right. <laughs> Easterners and Bravos have a different sense of time. Gotcha, gotcha. Of but uh, but I guess uh, my my Downton Abbey moment for this episode is uh, is the joke that that culminates with the punchline: "Bring me my brown pants." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I'm actually ask if you use that in the na in the U.S. Navy. If that is a uh... <laughs> we don't yet, but we do now. <laughs> I actually did not hear the punchline to the joke, so thank you very much for for explaining that one to me. I, as a as a as a as a seafarer yourself, you appreciate and understand the circumstances. But uh, yeah, of course, you know one one pirate, okay, two pirates, okay, ten, all right, get me get me my brown pants, and that's that's actually why I think this is a good entree into the episode, is because at least that scene. And to some extent, the other scenes, this, this, this episode is all very much about suppl supplicants looking for some kind of rough justice. And in a lot of cases, it's kind of about what does it take to, what's that last straw that broke the camel's back? You know, particularly in Tyrion's scene, we see one ship, we see two ships, and then eventually he's just had enough. And we we're over that breaking point, and he, we need his right. brown pants now. <laughs> very cool, very cool. So Shana Mlowski, Shana is visiting us as well, as she always is, from uh, the sunny environs of her outdoor patio deck, as you can tell from... 
Shayna always dwells in the darkness. She lives in the shadows. Uh, it's what all the Hannibal fans are, are doing these days is, is, uh, is lurking. Um, a little I trash guess. talk. Hey, Shana. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? Um, you know, this episode was so dense, and I feel like almost any scene could be our Downton Abbey moment. Um, so I guess I'm going to go with the first scene in the bank, um, specifically where they were talking about um, blood right versus the right of money. Um, sort of where we've been talking for, you know, years now, I guess, about where power comes from in the world of Westeros, and uh, this was a very literal discussion of that topic. Um, but I also liked how um, the banker was t talking about it as a story, because we've also been talking about storytelling this year. Um, he says that we prefer the stories that coins tell uh, or that money tells. It's less open to interpretation. Um, and it's sort of an interesting way of looking at history, sort of like a Marxist way, um, that everything comes down to money, right? Um, but other characters in this episode you know, disagree, like um, Davos and Stannis, for example, are like, you know, screw money, it's about, uh, you know, I have the legal right, and so on. Um, but also, you have just, uh, what's, where was I going? Uh, just the idea that people can get power, or kings can get power just by belief, people believing in them. This was an episode where they repeated titles of people uh, uh, of Ty not Tywin, of Stannis, of Tommen, of Daenerys, like over and over again, as if it were like an incantation. Like if you say it enough, they will become the leader magically. Um, and I really need to memorize this thing that all you guys know. I know Pete, you've said it a million times, and I can't memorize it, but I wrote it down, so I'm going to memorize it today, which is Pete Fenzel, first of his name, King of the Undals, and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, and Protector of the Realm. Oh, one more thing. Oh, you and... forgot the Roinar. The King oh, of the Andals and the Roinar. <laughs> Everyone oh, forgets gosh. the Roinar. The Roinar are, are Nymeria. Nymeria, Nymeria and her uh, her warriors, the Amazonian. Oh, how am I supposed to know this? I, I am merely <laughs> the Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, etc. Oh, okay. <laughs> they might they say the Roinar very much. Do they say the Roinar in the show as well? I don't think they do. No, they don't. don't. Okay, fair enough. Then you're getting um, it right. You're, you're, uh, thank you for making that effort. Really appreciate it. If, but if I say that enough about you, Pete, then you will become king of the podcast. Maybe. <laughs> Even if you don't have any money. Or, you know, your dad was not the king of the podcast. Or, you know, so you, you're not the heir to the podcast. But if we say it enough... You will be able to mete out justice or rule over people or when supplicants come to you, you will be able to uh, decide what they get or don't get just based on your whim because we just said that whole incantation enough that you have the power now. Uh, well, a man, a man who has to say he is king is no king. Or I have to say what I am the king is no king. Uh, and if my father were king of the podcast previously, he would have ruled with an iron <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, so <laughs> I love it though. This is all this is all great stuff. I feel like the very rich episode, and I'm totally on board with what everybody's saying. Ryan, uh, you 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 chip in. What's your uh, what's your doorway? What's your uh, your red door of Bravos that gets you into where where we're going to be talking about this episode? The the splaying legs of Bravos, right? The, the splaying <laughs> statuesque legs that we yeah. will sail through discursively. <laughs> right. Uh, right. 
And so uh, I actually also liked uh, the first scene in the bank, and I want to want to return to that as well. But I think the other scene that I felt um, was really interesting. It was kind of especially, you know, very Downton Abbey-ish in its in how kind of um, you know orthogonal it was to a lot of the main kind of other scenes. Was the scene between um, Varys and Oberyn Martell um, a, a, after the small council meeting? Um, and there's a few things uh, in this scene that I felt actually illuminated some of the themes. Um, that, that Shana mentioned as well. Um, and so one particularly uh, was, you know, he says, um, Oberyn uh, remarks to Lord Varys uh, about, he says, well, everyone calls you Lord. Uh, and he says, well, I, I have no title. Um, or I guess then Oberyn says, well, but everyone calls you this. And, and Varys kind of raises his eyebrows as if to say almost, well, don't make me go into my old bit, my old bit about where power resides, right? And, and it's this very <laughs> cool thing where he, it almost is like winking to the audience of, you know what I think about that. Um, <laughs> and and I, I think that was cool. Um, and then uh, that kind of theme about kind of title and, and title and station um, came back later on where um, Oberyn says, uh, it's a big, beautiful world and most of us die in the same corner of it. Um, and, uh, and, and then Varys responds by saying, um, most of us aren't princes. And so that there's this ability that, that title and station life um, gives an ability to, to move and to actually do things, right? So this list of things that you have after your name um, doesn't just allow you, uh, isn't just, you know, pomp and circumstance, but actually entitles you to certain rights and certain obligations. And we see that throughout the episode, um, you know, especially uh, with uh, with Daenerys uh, um, holding court and uh, and seeing supplicants and kind of actually exercising the obligations of ruling, um, and we see that in uh, Tommen uh, recusing himself of his uh, of his rights and obligations with respect to the trial, um, and so I think that that's um, an interesting uh, interesting piece, um, and then one last kind of um, nugget in the scene that again links to I think a lot of stuff in the. Um, in, in the episode and in the show as a whole is where um, I, I believe uh, uh, Oberyn near the end of the scene says to Varys, uh, basically, you should come to our pleasure dome. Uh, and he's like, we have a lot of boys. It's boys, isn't it? And and Varys says, no. And he's like, hmm, girls, really? Uh, and Varys, uh, Varys says, um, I find that the absence of desire leaves one free to pursue other things. And again, gives this very knowing look at the Iron Throne. Um, and, and I think that that you know, is almost the... Um, the, the inverse or it is a compliment to um, the Meister Eamon speech that we, we talk about so many times about kind of, uh, you know, the, the tragedy of being, you know, built for, for love. Um, and, and so I thought that that scene, um, even though it, it wasn't, they weren't really talking about a lot of the major plot points or the stuff that was happening, um, had a, a few threads that kind of um, connected in really interesting ways to a lot of the uh, the rest of the episode and the series as a whole. Well, wasn't there so much talk? Well, actually, they didn't really talk about it. They talked around it. Um, uh, talk around uh, people not having genitalia in this episode. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whether... Yeah, I- 
um, Oberyn sort of uh, asking um, Varys about his backstory and Varys being like, I'm not going to go there right now, but in the viewers' minds, we know what that means. We're talking about the Unsullied um, and also talking um, about Theon, of course, um, and with uh, Yara, I guess she's called now, reading that letter about uh, the, the dick in the box as opposed to the nipple in the box. That's a different TV show. Um, and it's the computer! It's the computer! <laughs> <laughs> well, you do a really good Ginsburg. Um, so, um, yeah, I, um, basically, I'm agreeing with you, Ryan, that, um, yeah, this sort of has to do with uh, sexuality and how a, a lack of that desire, I guess, gets things done in a way, which is interesting. I'm not sure how that sort of links into the rest of the episode, but it, it was certainly a theme that they put in there purposely, I think. Yeah, well, I guess well, hopefully we'll circle back as we hit some of the other, dig into some of these other scenes and how they connect. Um, Pete, what did uh, what did you think? Oh, what was your scene? So I I definitely felt like the, the scene had one pole, right, which was really firmly rooted in the Iron Bank, and particularly the Iron Bank's claim to empiricism or what have you, right? Like, we like the stories that are associated with numbers. The way that our culture currently works, you would think that somebody who talks like that is talking about... Uh, that they want things to be measured, that they want to be able to assert things that are quantitative. But the Iron Bank turns out to be pretty sentimental too and strategic, so maybe it's that they really do prefer just the stories of numbers. Uh, but, but at any rate, that's one of the anchors, uh, polls of the episode, which is this idea that, you know, well, all this stuff about titles and all that stuff is fine, but we care about the kind of the things that, are, that actually matter, which we can observe and we can measure. And then the other scene that I felt really provided a totally opposite view of this, which loops, and it loops into a lot of what you guys have been saying, is the scene where Jamie goes into Tyrion to bring Tyrion into the trial, and he puts shackles on Tyrion, like manacles, right, big heavy iron chains, and of course Tyrion looks up at him because he's like, what is he going to do, make a break for it, right, like Tyrion's going to like punch Marin Trant and like, you know, hurricane kicks, oh you can, and like run away, like no, Tyrion is powerless to escape. He's not very fast, you know, and he's not strong. So the idea that he's being brought out in chains is, chains is absurd. It's unnecessary. And, and, and Jamie says, well, we mustn't, no, father, you know, father ordered it, right? Uh, and then Tyrion says, well, we mustn't disappoint father, right? And that, for me, speaks to the power, the power structures that you guys were talking about with regards to title, with regards to the way that, that Varys believes that narrative is shaped through the way that people believe in discourses of power and so on and so forth. Um, the, the idea that father, by virtue of being father, has this authority that is really deeply meaningful and that it's being exercised in ways that quantitatively don't matter, right? That, that it doesn't to, – to the idea of a really basic quantitative view of Tyrion's imprisonment, he's caught, right? And he can be killed pretty much whenever they want. He's got no army. He's got no resources. Uh, and so he's a done as far as the math of the Iron Bank would be concerned. Um, and yet it is still important to bring him out in chains. And this, of course, is like for the sake of show. It's kind of Tyrellish. We need to like put on the theater of dominance in front of everybody. Um, and, and I think that there are a lot of people today who are pretty skeptical about the theater of dominance, uh, more the show than they should be, because I think that the theater of dominance is a totally legit uh, way of exercising power, but that's like the whole Varus thing. So that, that's sort of how I saw it, right? Is like, you know, and also just the idea of of, of of all these titles, some of them are just another way of saying father, um, right? Like there are a lot of fathers in this episode, and 
Another one is um, Hizadar Zolorak, right, uh, who talks about uh, when it's like, well, you were um, you were a slaver. You were a member. You were, and all of them, the people who were crucified, were slaves, and they oppressed all the people. And he says, you know, all I can I can only speak to you as a son who loved his father, right? And that little Antigone moment. But look about the way that sort of invoking uh, the relationship with a father, this sort of discursive power of a of a of a of an authority figure, uh, has real influence over what happens. Well, and and I noticed that again in um in in uh, Ramsey Snow's letter as well as it was re- reread, it signed um, Ramsey Snow, natural born son of um of of Roose Bolton, right? And and so it's this interesting thing where he doesn't try to say like you know heir of Roose Bolton. He's you know he's not he's he's like edging as close to that line as he possibly can uh, of, of, you know, you know, I, I, yeah, this guy's my, my father. Um, and then, but kind of just lets it like at that, like lets this kind of half truth uh, be there by kind of, he, he takes as far, you know, like biology as far as it can take him and then like leaves the rest to the imagination and kind of just, you know, takes the rest with him. Um, and I think that that, um, that kind of, you know, manipulation of paternity and the kind of reconstruction of that fits with uh, exactly with what you were saying, Pete. But Ramsey actually at this moment is sort of positioning himself almost as a father, um, but now to Reek, like he's sort of like bathing him in this very odd uh, parental sort of way. Um, and, you know, Reek or Theon has basically you know, uh, taken himself uh, out of both of his families. He is no longer a Stark. He betrayed them, and his sister comes along like, we are going to take you back into the fold of our family, and he's like, I'm done with that. So um, it's interesting in this episode of how many people are sort of um, either reinforcing their fam- uh, familial ties or trying to uh, create new families, like... Uh, you know, with Jamie and Tywin, you know, Jamie's like, okay, if you save our family now by uh, not killing Tyrion, I will create will create my own little new family that will continue your name, which is uh, an interesting moment. Uh, did that happen in the books? I don't remember. Uh, no, no, it did not. That I'm was a, that sure was a new that... thing, right? Yeah, well, Jamie would never. Uh, yeah, no, ja- Jamie. It doesn't make sense for Jamie to voluntarily resign from the Kingsguard as a person. Uh, I mean, in the books, uh, because he's so. We've already had the scene here where well, we had it a little early, uh, but we had the scene it, the, you, that happens in the fourth book where Jamie is looking at the Kingsguard book, at the White Book, and is looking at the unfinished page of his Kingsguard book. Right, and, and you get this sense from Jamie that it's really important to him, really important to him, that his legacy as a Kingsguard uh, move up from here in some way, like improve in some way, that he do something else, they add to his legacy in some way. Uh, I think we're we're witnessing more of the butterfly effect, the butterfly effect of Jamie. This idea that they've made a couple of small changes in the way that Jamie works as a character, and then for the character to seem internally consistent from there, they have to make a lot of other changes. And so Jamie is now a lot more sentimental. This also is because Jamie came home earlier in the store in the show than in the books. And so since he came home earlier, he's had a lot more time to get accustomed to the situation, and thus his actions are much more deliberate, and he's had time to plan them. As opposed to coming home and having everything be like a huge rush, like what? My son is dead? Like what? Like Tyrion is in prison? Like what? You know, like what do I? What am I supposed to do? Here he's had enough time to plan, so it doesn't make sense for him to not have some sort of proposition, I suppose. 
but yeah, no, it doesn't. That doesn't happen in the books. The bath scene, as far as I know, doesn't happen in the books. Maybe uh, that this whole one... raid is invented, right? I don't yeah. remember that raid happening in the books yeah. either. Yeah, that's true. Asha never goes to rescue Theon, uh, and yeah, no, there's a lot. This had, and also Stannis. I don't think Stannis goes to Bravos in the books. I think that that Tychonostorus comes to Stannis rather than the other way around. That the bankers come to him rather than him going to Bravos. I think. I think that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, that doesn't really matter that much. But if you're tracking, that's this is this is the biggest departure from the books so far, um, uh, at least in terms of like number of minutes of the episode that are dedicated to plot points that don't happen in the books. Um, and the idea that Tyrion will be pardoned and be allowed to take the Night's Watch is also not in the books. I don't think um, that's not really on the table uh, in this regard. But let's talk about Tyrion's trial. Uh, does anyone have any thoughts about particularly? It was interesting. Um, in my notes, I started thinking about who was called as a witness, right? Like, who's called as a witness and what do they say? Um, and, and what is it? It's, it's, it's uh, well, who, who wants to go through them? Who wants to go through the witnesses at Tyrion's trial and sort of the general case that they make against Tyrion? Well, the, the interesting thing is that almost none of the witnesses outright lie. Like, n- normally you think of a kangaroo court as, like, somebody just comes in as, like, I saw him doing it. Like, I saw him slipping something into the, the poison drink or whatever it is. But every single one of the witnesses takes something that actually happened and either twists it out of proportion or just makes it seem much worse than it really is. So you have Sir Marin talking about the time that uh, Tyrion threatened Joffrey sitting on the throne. And Tyrion points out that, like, the reason he was doing it was because Joffrey was being Joffrey. He was threatening Sansa with a crossbow and having his knights beat her. Um, <clears throat> and similarly with, like, uh, Maester Aemon, who's kind of, like, CSI, Game of Thrones unit here, <laughs> doing the autopsy and, and all that. And then Cersei repeats um, Tyrion's threats again, Tyrion's words about how her joy will turn to ashes in her mouth. Um, and then the... the, the to, but those are all kind of predictable. Like we know that those three characters hate Tyrion and are going to do what it takes to get him, get him out. So the next two are more surprising. You have Lord Varys, who we'd always seen as kind of an at least uh, an uneasy ally with Tyrion, because they were always kind of the two adults in the room. Like they were always kind of the two people that like we can speak as intellectual equals, because the rest of these people are kind of crazy or uh, just below our level. And so seeing Varys kind of turn on Tyrion, again, not necessarily lying, but at least omitting a lot of the important contextual details. Um, And then, of course, you have Shay, the big surprise witness, um, again, twisting a lot of what's going on. Um, She probably lies a little more than the other witnesses, but even then, most of what she says is nominally true, um, but it's just all twisted in a way that makes the story seem completely different than it is. Yeah, is there any, uh, what sort of trial is this that he has no, there's no defense and there's no cross-examination or anything like that? Is this, Ben, do you have a sense for sort of the legal history of this kind of proceeding? Um, It is, there are certain, well, there are certain, uh, until a long time, even the United States, actually, defendants could not testify um, at all, ever. Um, That's actually relatively recent, and like, I want to say late, mid to late 1800s, depending on the state. Uh, but so for a long time, defendants could not testify. But of course, they could have witnesses testify on their behalf. Um, so I don't know if like later in the trial, after this phase, he could have had witnesses come and testify on his behalf. Hmm. I think he could, because I remember when Pod came to talk to him, there was yeah. like a, a dialogue about who do you want to testify for yourself. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, the no examination model, I don't really know about, you know, he's not obviously, it's not adversarial in the sense that he doesn't get to like ask questions of the witnesses. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is notable for each of the witnesses that Tyrion was helping them at the moment that they're referring to him doing the terrible things. Well, except for, yeah, even Cersei, right? Like Maren Trant refers to two instances where Tyrion uh, threatens uh, Joffrey. And one of them is when uh, Joffrey, when they're waylaid by the mob. Right by like the angry mob, and and Joffrey doesn't know what's going on and wants to go like get them killed or something. And Tyrion is like, ah, you know, this is a terrible idea. You know, like ah, you stupid. Uh, and the other one is yeah, when they're threatening, when he's threatening Sansa Stark and stripping her naked and having her beaten in the middle of court, because uh, Tyrion understands these things are problematic from a political standpoint, right? Like they they are they are undermining Joffrey's authority. So yes, he's angry at Joffrey. He's angry at the injustice. He likes Sansa. He doesn't want Sansa to be abused, but he also understands that the Starks are a powerful family and more than any of the Lannisters appreciates the danger of getting, of like giving them political capital by doing atrocities to them. Um, and then, and then, like, the situation with Cersei, he was trying to save the city by getting Joffrey to stay on the battlements, which, of course, he didn't do. Uh, so, which, of course, Cersei did outright lie about that, but but he was, he was, acting in their behalf as well. And then I guess not so much with, with Pacell, when he took away the poisons, um, I mean, did he take away the poisons? Did he ransack the... Uh, I don't remember what happens to those poisons. I don't think so. I think that that part is just a fabrication. And he certainly doesn't know that... Even if they were taken, he certainly doesn't know that Tyrion did it. He just kind of asserts that that's the case. Yeah, yeah. So at any rate, like, most of the situations where Tyrion is doing these things, he's doing it in what we would think of as good faith. Right, and and the fact that these are the moments that, and it's almost as if Tyrion cares so much, uh, f- for some reason about these things that nothing, nobody else cares about, like the welfare of Sansa, the relative happiness of the population, whether everybody dies from Sansa's attack. <laughs> like none of the other people care about any of these things, but Tyrion cares so much that the points where he gets angry and loses his cool and and says pro- things that eventually get him in trouble, um, those are the sort of is is at his most vulnerable also because that's sort of what he cares about and we saw an interesting uh moment for that in this episode that's certainly true i mean what it's, you actually, gonna, oh, it's really interesting because as we're talking about this description of of um of Tyrion as kind of you know being motivated by kind of a often greater goods and kind of you know like a lot of strategic forethought and also being tremendously emotional it actually reminds me of another um uh beloved character fiction that we've been talking about a lot recently, which is Jack Bauer. Um, and so that there's like a lot of ways in which Tyrion is kind of the Jack Bauer of, of Westeros. Um, and there are times in which Jack Bauer... Okay, well, we're getting a little bit of... Okay, go ahead. Or, or courts of, um, uh, of, of public opinion. Um, and... Uh, and uh, sorry, I, that derailed my my train of thought a little bit. Um, and I think though, I think what's interesting. That's no, okay. Uh, Just have it a little. Time. Um, I think what's interesting with with Tyrion is that when he is on trial, um, and you know, it, the twenty four podcast is for uh, for talking about how Jack Bauer solves these problems. But there, we, we now at the end of the episode get the second time where um, Tyrion kind of faces this kind of doing having done the right thing and having it be misconstrued by calling for trial by combat, right? And I, so I think it's this interesting thing that this is the, um, you know, that this is his recourse of when you 
you know, like when your own words can be used against you, um, and that no, and and when no one kind of um, recognizes, you know, that you are the only kind of um, you know sane person in a crazy world, or a, a kind of person doing the right thing in a relatively um, uh, in, in a relatively evil world, that that then there is some kind of external call to justice, and so I think this this like the mechanism uh, in you know in the legal system of of the trial by um, by combat is is really interesting uh, because it's sort of like well the gods will then sort this out because um, because human systems are flawed and I, I think that um, and again as a non-reader of the um, of the books oh I guess so it's just as a curiosity so uh, so there is a trial by combat um, in the books is that is that correct or is that already feeling like a departure yes there is there is a trial by combat in the books that is very true Okay, so yeah, and so then, uh, and and so this this once again is there's still a asymmetry here where I'm just excited for the next episode in which I could wish, wish I could just hit next episode, uh, <laughs> and you guys kind of have a sense of um of, of where this uh, where this is going. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so um so that's interesting because this is this is also somewhat of a symmetry with starting the episode with Tycho Nestoris saying all this stuff that you're saying about titles and about obligations and about rightfulness, we don't really care about that. We care about numbers, right? And then we go through this whole thing where we build this enormous case about the meaningfulness and the power of titles, of relationships of authority, of the way of, do you love me, Reek? Right, that sort of relationship and what that really means. And then at the end, Tyrion says, like, I have a different sort of remedy for this kind of situation, which is that, well, when this discourse doesn't work, we go to violence, right? It's like, it's like, okay, there's this idea of like management and then control and then murder, right? Like, and I mean, I I say use the word murder very loosely for comic effect in a lot of these podcasts where it's like, I know it's not really murder if someone dies in trial by combat, but that's really what he's suggesting is that like, well, if you don't believe me and I don't recognize the authority of any of these things that are happening, then this is going to come to blows and that's how we're going to settle this. It's interesting. Um, in that context, uh, that Tywin refers to Tyrion, and multiple people refer to punishments coming not from people but from the gods. The punishments also that are rendered by courts, not just the punishments that are rendered by battle, right? Like uh, this idea that people, by following these procedures and by acknowledging these titles of authority, uh, empower the gods to render, to punish people for doing the wrong thing. Um, and it's interesting sort of what, the, what do the gods mean? What are the gods' numbers? Are the gods' violence? Are the gods' uh, justice? You know, what are they in this context is an interesting question. It's it's interesting. It makes me think of actually just um, last night uh, I, I was watching the uh, the the new series of Cosmos, uh, and uh, they were talking about um, – uh, the 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 uh, British uh, f- uh, physicist and chemist uh, Michael Faraday, and talking about this, uh, like, you know, his discoveries of the unities between kind of magnetism, electricity, uh, and electricity, um, and 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 energy, right? And so thinking about kind of you know fungibility of various physical forces, and I th- I mean, I, and I think that that actually connects to something that we're dis- discussing here about the conversions and interconnections between. Um, between violence, between kind of physical force, um, between economic power uh, and 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 political power, and so that you know there is in this episode, in some ways, that first scene is so important again because they kind of talk about um, accounting, uh, and it, 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 it like the as the episode plays out, and really you know all of Game of Thrones, you know, gives uh, it, it reveals that you know in fact it's not just about the numbers on the books, but it's about how. 
um, how money, you know, converts to political power, converts to physical violence, um, and how these, you know, how there are um, both, you know, exchange rates, and then there are also kind of disjunctures between these, um, and and uh, and and that's kind of an interesting synergy and connection uh, between all of these. Yeah. And the 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 Danny scene kind of shows an interesting flip side of that coin because the dragons are kind of like violence personified, like they are the ultimate violent machine that can fly over your head and burn your house down. But when you're not actually using them to do that to someone, you have to pay for guys for people's goats because this violent thing that's in your employ is extremely expensive to maintain. Um, and Danny really needs to rethink her three times value policy. Because all of a sudden, there's going to be a lot of burnt goat corpses turning up in the, uh, right. the building. Like this is the this is the cobra, the Indian cobra paradox. <laughs> Indeed, Ben, I wanted to ask quickly because I think this is a concept I've heard come out of legal thinking. I don't know whether it's something that people talk about in law school, but I use the word remedy. But then I feel like there's this. I, I have this sense that there's this idea in the law, and you as the resident uh, legal scholar. Um, that there are certain sorts of problems for which you can achieve certain sorts of remedies, and that in the the remedies are sort of balanced against each other in the legal system and the the way the governments are structured. Hopefully, uh, we we aspire them to be balanced against each other, such that if one sort of remedy isn't available to you, another sort of remedy is available to you. Uh, I mean, does that is that like does that make sense? Am I, am I speaking to a vocabulary that exists, or have I just cobbled it together from blog posts and whatnot? No, absolutely. A remedy has a very well, it has a, it's a broad category of meaning. Um, there's a phrase in the law: "Your right is only as good as your remedy." You know, you can say you, and this this kind of links up to what Stannis is saying. Like, okay, I have a right to the throne, but you, he doesn't actually have a remedy to assert that right. Like, he doesn't have a way of actually getting that right. So it doesn't really matter that he has the right. He is the right to the front throne, but he's not going to get it until he gets some soldiers. Um, so, like, the, the classic one is money damages versus an injunction. Um, normally, when you sue somebody, all you get is an order that says that person has to pay you X amount of damages. But in certain extraordinary cases, you can actually get a piece of paper where the judge orders that person to do or refrain from doing a particular thing. Um, and that's considered a more extreme measure uh, because money damages are easy to do. They can just kind of figure out how they want to pay the bill, but an order is a, is a more significant infringement on your freedom. So that, that's kind of, that's one of the classic remedy issues. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that whole idea is really important to Game of Thrones, this idea that you can you can assert a right, right, uh, but but the, the ways by which that assertion can be made real uh, vary. And you need to, I mean, if you want to actually take your right, that right that is yours, you need to follow the rules or, you know, break the rules or whatever, but you need to, like, operate within the discursive space of the sort of remedy that you're trying to bring to bear on your interest, right? Like, if you want the people to love you, you need to pay for their goats. Uh, you can't use the dragons as a way of getting the people to love you, right? Like, uh, and, and I mean, this is this is sort of like the big, one of the big questions of this episode is, you know, do you love me, Reek? Right? Do you love your father? Right? Does Hisidor Zolorak, whose father was part of this Council of Wise Masters and who was sort of against slavery, but clearly not that much, right? Like, well, he loved his father, and what does that mean about him? And what Rick love does he love uh, Ramsey Snow? And it's like, like, um, I mean, I'm just ta talking about in terms of like um, the ways in which people can be compelled and/or voluntarily give you the things that you want uh, by virtue of what you claim that you are owed by them. Um, do you, do you guys want to talk about uh, any of the, the Ramsey Snow stuff or the Yara, the Yara stuff in this episode? Um, is, is there anything in there that's of interest 
other than what we've already said, other than, of course, like the really surprising like washcloth gag move that Ramsey does not pull, where it's just like, eat the washcloth! Where like, Theon is like, oh, he's got the washcloth, what's he gonna do? Um, I mean, is that only me who imagined that there was going to be like a, a like really forced naked gun style washcloth strangulation that was going to happen? Um, maybe oh, was, you were, I mean, you were thinking of 24 with uh, forcing the washcloth down someone's throat and then uh, taking it out and the the stomach lining comes out throat? No? Oh, God. Remember no, I was that? thinking more of like a fight, scene, no. a fight scene where like Frank Drebin puts a bar of soap on someone's face or something. And it's like, oh, no, I've been defeated. Or like uses a hairdryer and it's like, oh, I can't handle it. Um, so, I think that, I mean, so in that scene, I mean, I definitely like had a sense that, you know, there uh, any scene where Ramsey Snow is, I, I'm definitely afraid that something terrible is going to uh, happen. Um, but, uh, it, you know, and this, it was really interesting to feel that. And I think it was a, uh, a spectacularly acted scene um, by the actor who plays Theon Greyjoy. And both that scene and the preceding scene. Um, and I think there, especially, you know, the way that he acts, uh, you know, uh, you know, Theon as, uh, as, as Reek, um, is really interesting uh, because, and I think that it was it was highlighted by having him in the kennels that you know he really ad- uh, adopts the kind of physicality and mannerism of of dogs uh, in a really interesting way, and even just the way that he kind of his ex- is expressing loyalty and 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 love is in this is in a much more you know man's best friend kind of way than as a kind of person uh, you know who is is you know giving this kind of love and, and, and reciprocating uh, in a way that is kind of fully aware. And so there's this kind of really interesting, it's, it's exploring um, an interesting side of, you know, what, you know, this this form of prolonged torture and kind of um, abuse uh, does and, and, and how that kind of shapes um, human bonds. And I, I think that that is just emphasized um, by, by the acting, um, and which is just really compelling. So I kind of felt that terror throughout that. And so I feel like, you know, in some ways, you know, Game of Thrones has made us all its reeks in a certain sense. Um, and that we'd be like, oh, oh yes, oh, oh, we love you. Oh, we love you, show. Oh, what, what, what shall you do? I'm so scared to go anywhere else. Oh, oh, oh yes, this is so good. <laughs> oh, man, another... Um... Enrique, Enrique, <laughs> Enrique, Enrique. Uh, another. Uh, we're, we're sort of coming around to the end. We're gonna have a little bit of a short episode this week. A short by which I mean forty minutes, which is not that short. Um, but I also thought, if we're thinking about um, like kind of random obs- like observations to wrap it up, um, I, I, does anyone, did anyone else think about the story of what of Muzio uh, when 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 uh, when um, uh, Davos put his hand out? And he was in Bravos, and he was uh, he was ta- he like put out his hand with just the fingers, and it was sort of a testament to the the sort of faithfulness and the dedication of uh, of Stannis. Um, this just reminded me of the story of the old the old Ro- story from the Etruscan Wars, where the Roman uh, the Romans were fighting the Etruscans under the Roman monarchy, and the Muzio went in to try to assassinate the Etruscan Etruscan king and was unsuccessful, and he he punished his own hand for his failure by like thrusting it into the fire, right? And I just I just thought that, that kind of gesture uh, recall kind of like a historical moment. I wanted to point that observation out. I mean, is there any other observations cool. you guys had about this episode, the symbology of it, anything that, that came in? Obviously, the Colossus of Rhodes with the Titan of Bravos is a thing, as well as Julius Caesar uh, astride the world like a Colossus with the legs on either side of the port. Um, 
Anything else that you guys caught or, or were interested in in terms of like the the trappings of this episode, the color, the flavor of it? Uh, yeah, I just have uh, one more actually quantitative question, Pete. It goes back to something that you said very, very early on in the recap. So now when when uh, when, when uh, Jamie comes in and puts chains on Tyrion, would you say that he uses one chain or he uses two chains? <laughs> two swords! Two chains! What? 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 Wiz Khalifa? That's Wiz. for Michael Ford, uh, I believe, who was... I believe it was Michael. It was one of our... If it's not Michael, I, I mistake, but one of our Twitter followers uh, lamented that we did not make a two chains uh, joke uh, in the um, in in the in, in the very first uh, episode of the season for Two Swords, and so I decided you know, I made the the commitment to for every recap that I'm on, I will find a way to shout two chains or two somethings. So mm -hmm. that is we have delivered even just you know at just just under the wire. Awesome. All right, so I'm going to go through our Twitter shout-outs for just a moment. we got a little bit of flurry of activity on the tweeters. Um, Anthony Abate. I have uh, Bruce Wayne Brady, who we all know from the site. Hi, how's it going, Bruce Wayne Brady? I haven't read the books. How did it benefit Shay to testify in the trial, or am I getting ahead into possible spoilers? You are getting ahead into possible spoilers. Uh, <laughs> Tony, that's safe to say, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, Tony Antilla. Yay, Madman references. Just started watching the recap. That's great. Awesome. Uh, I've uh, been watching this season of Mad Men too. Uh, Shana and Ryan, you guys are watching it, right? Yes, I am, all and right. uh, it's very good. Watch oh, Mad so, Men. so we've all we've all been watching Mad Men. Yeah, I mean, people on the Twitter have been talking about how they miss our recaps. So, uh, but we have a forum on the Overthinking It website that's been going with our little uh, analyses, and so if anyone's interested, come along and talk about <laughs> nipple boxes and such. Maybe we can do. I think we're. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, this this half season, this kind of Breaking Bad half season, is actually about to come to a close. I believe they're doing seven and seven, um, like a classy drink of the era. Um, and so maybe it may make sense uh, when we reach the end of this seven or uh, however many uh, to do a kind of a recap covering this half and looking forward. Because in part of part of the reason why we um, are are not covering Mad Men is that you know it, the show airs the same nights as Game of Thrones. And like the 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 bandwidth, the human cognitive bandwidth to recap both in this style uh, every week was was lacking. But um, I think that there's enough uh, viewers and enough uh, overthinkers that it may make sense to convene at least one uh, one special session. Yeah. Um, and so so keep a lookout for that in the um, you know on the Twitter and in the uh, mm -hmm. in in the stream. Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, if, if there wasn't as much interest in game of in game Mad Men as in Game of Thrones, so we had to make a Sophie's Choice, which is again inappropriate use of that term, which I apologize for. Amina Amina Yaman on Twitter has asked some pretty loaded questions, and we don't have time to address them in full, but we'll do our best in a moment or two. As much as I don't like Tywin because of his hatred towards Tyrion, I believe Tywin is the best ruler. What do you think? All right. Let's the quick answers, guys. What do you think about the idea that Tywin is the best ruler? He's certainly very good at playing the Game of Thrones. Um, he's not on the throne, but he's had several people uh, on the throne who he can control. So, uh, so far, he's winning. He hasn't died. Uh, ergo, I guess he hasn't lost. Um, 
yeah, so I, I think he is probably uh, maybe not the best ruler for the, the little people. We haven't really seen much of the little people um, in Westeros this season, so I'm not sure how they're doing. Other than um, Tyrion, who is guilty of being a dwarf. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, and also, I guess he ran out of money, so in that respect, he's not <laughs> doing well. Um, but then again, there are lots of countries that are in debt, and it's not always bad to be in debt, right? Um, you could always pay your debts Lannister style later. So I'm on the fence about this. Let's say that. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll sit there. And then the la her last question, I don't understand what angle Varys would have to testify against Tyrion. Is it explained better in the books? Um, I mean, I'll say that Varys didn't step up to protect Ned Stark, even though he knew Ned Stark didn't deserve to die. Uh, Varys doesn't really stick his neck out for people. Um, yeah, I think he. I think he just sees the way the winds are blowing, and he 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 goes. He's he he might help out Tyrion if he thought he could actually do it, make a difference. But there's no point in trying to help Tyrion, so he's gonna he's gonna side with the winning side. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's it's really no secret now. What exactly Varys wants, you know, that big empty chair up there, uh, that there a lot remains unspoken and a lot remains unexplained, and that will have to remain explained for yet another week. Whoa! As we are about ready to call this one to a close. Thanks so much for catching us live. We love you, viewers on YouTube. Keep tweeting at us with your questions, and we'll get right back to you. We'll be back at nine Eastern, uh, six Pacific, nine PM Hong Kong time next week uh, and Monday and uh, we got a couple more great episodes of the show to go so we're pretty excited about that catch the community recaps catch the real the world's first real time 24 recaps which are which are heading at it's about one o'clock in the afternoon uh, we will when we come back you will find what Ryan and I had for lunch during our lunch break uh, I'm excited which is pretty intense yeah, definitely. And, and and by all means, you know, subscribe here, subscribe to YouTube, subscribe to the audio feed, and visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It yeah. probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.